Thanks, Wally. Well, if you guys want to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, that's where we'll be today. Um, last time we were together, we looked at Acts chapter 9, where there we saw a very significant event take place, which was the conversion of uh, Saul, Saul of Tarsus. We saw how he was brought to his knees and, and, uh, and changed by Jesus Christ himself um, into that man that we all know as uh, the great apostle Paul. And uh, in chapter 9, we left off with, with Paul uh, being sent back home to Tarsus. If you all remember, um, he was in Jerusalem. Some of the Hellenistic Jews, were, he was stirring them up again. And uh, the, the persecution was about to start coming upon uh, Paul. And the Christians in Jerusalem sent him back home, um, hundreds of miles north to where he's from, back to Tarsus. And the text told us that at that time the church had peace after, after Paul was sent back home. Um, but we, we were not really given a lot of insight into what, exactly what Paul was up to after he was sent back to Tarsus. Um, we'll, we'll pick back up with Paul later, actually at the end of chapter 11. Um, but we don't know exactly what all Paul was up to, but I think we can all safely speculate that we can imagine that the Apostle Paul was definitely um, about the Lord's work um, back in Tarsus where he was from. Um, I think that's a, a safe speculation that we can make. Um, at the very end of chapter 9, uh, we, we, Luke caught us back up with the ministry of, of the Apostle Peter, who we're actually going to continue um, looking at and studying today. Remember that we saw Peter was actually able to resurrect um, a woman from the dead. Remember we looked at Tabitha, this woman who was was so beloved by the church that she was in, in the city of Joppa, that they sent for Peter and brought Peter um, to Joppa where this woman was dead. And he actually raised her um, from the dead. So we saw that great miracle. And the last verse there in chapter 9, before we finished off, it, it left us with uh, chapter 9, verse 43, said, And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. And so that, that city where... Uh, the resurrection was performed by Peter. That's where Peter remained for many days. And that's really where we're going to pick up. We're going to pick up with um, Peter being in Joppa. Today I actually want to cover two chapters. I actually want to cover chapter 10 and chapter 11. Um, we got started off at a, at a decent time, so I think we'll be able to do it not only because of the time, but because what we're going to see is chapter 11 is basically a retelling uh, a, a recapturing of all the events that happened in chapter 10. So we're going to study chapter 10. What's going to happen in chapter 11 is we're going to have Peter basically retelling of all the events that we're going to look at in chapter 10. And so we're not actually going to cover all of chapter 11 thoroughly. I'm going to try to pull out um, any of the additional pieces of information from chapter 11 that aren't included in chapter 10, and it will really help us um, even as we go through chapter 10. So... What we're going to see today is, is really one of the most significant events, I think, of the book of Acts, of the spread of the gospel, and this is what we're going to see. We're going to see the inclusion of the Gentiles being brought in um, to the church. We're going to see the, the Gentiles finally being brought in and accepted uh, by the apostles, by uh, the, the Jewish, uh, the, the, the church there in Jerusalem. And uh, why is it so significant, do you think, that um, the Gentiles are being brought into the people of God? Maybe why is it so, so significant, why is this important for us, that Gentiles are being brought into the people of God? Any ideas? Why, why is it important for us that this happens? No ideas? I'm the Gentile. That's right. It's a big transition. It's a huge transition in that... Gentiles, which is what we are. When the Bible says Gentiles, it's speaking of every nation, every race that is not Jewish. And so anybody here who is not Jewish, this is a very significant event that God is reaching out his arm to the, to the entire world and bringing in others who are not Jews. The only reason we are saved and that we are even here right now is because God extended his grace and his mercy to those other than Jews. And so it is indeed uh, very significant that God did this. Um, I just had here the, the, the language of Paul um, in Ephesians chapter 2 when he spoke of the condition of the Gentiles, of, of all the nations besides Jews, this would have included us, 
Um, this is our standing. This is, this is where we were with God before God extended the gospel to um, the world. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 12, he says, We were separate from Christ. We were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to the covenants of promise. We were having no hope, and we were without God in the world. That was the state of everyone besides Israel, uh, besides God's people, that we were completely without um, all of these graces that God gave to his people Israel. But now we're going to see God calling all of the, all of the world um, to himself. Uh, maybe, maybe one more additional primer question just on this inclusion of the Gentiles. What text maybe have we looked at? I've tried to, to repeat this text several times throughout the study. Um, but what text would have led us to expect this event to take place? What, have, has there been anything that should have um, given us a heads up that the gospel would in fact go um, to the Gentiles? Is there anything off the top of your head that... Great Commission. The Great Commission. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, which is really what I think um, is an extension of... I'm thinking of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. If you, if you just want to... Re let's reference it one more time because I think it's so important. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this was the words of Jesus prior to his ascension. Um, he's telling his apostles, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And that's the section we're looking at today. We've already seen, um, we've already seen them be, they've been witnesses in Jerusalem. We saw that at Pentecost. Uh, we've seen them be witnesses in Judea and Samaria. You remember the, the persecution broke out and sent uh, the believers to Samaria. We saw, um, if you remember, Simon the sorcerer and all, and all of those. Um, events happened and taken place, and we saw them receive the Spirit. And now we're going to see the gospel, just as Jesus said that, that it should, we're going to see it be carried even to the remotest parts of the earth, which in, in the mind of, of the listeners there would have, would have been the Gentiles to go out from um, the Jerusalem area and from Judea into the outermost parts of the earth. So that's what we're going to see today. So uh, that's enough introduction. Let's, let's dive into the text. And let's meet um, this man named Cornelius, who is, who is really central in this, um, this, this event that takes place of the Gentiles being brought in to the people of God. I'll read maybe verses uh, 1 through 4. Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, it says, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household. And he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze, fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, the angel said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And so this is the description of this man, this Gentile, in the city of uh, Caesarea. This is the description given to us by Luke of this man. And so I just want to stop even right here already and just lay some, uh, what I think is just very foundational, important, um, some theological groundwork on our understanding of this man, Cornelius, in, in our understanding of his relationship with God at this point. And so I just want to ask the question, even what do you guys think about this? When, when you look back at these first four verses, um, and you look at this description of, of this man, Cornelius, he's a Gentile, yes, uh, but what would you say from this description that Luke gives us? Would you consider him to be um, somebody who has a, a, a valid relationship with God in New Testament terms? Is this a man who is who seems to be saved, does this seem to be a believer or not? Um, what would you think about that? Um, I'll tell you what I think about that. I think that he is, in fact, a believer. I think that he is, in fact, a believer, and I have just maybe three points for us to consider on this. Um, first of all, the text, Luke seems to just be uh, repeatedly uh, repeating the, all of the good deeds and aspects that this guy um, is working out in his faith. 
um, good deeds are most certainly necessary of somebody who is, in fact, a believer. You know, that's what the Bible tells us. That's how you validate whether somebody's a believer, by their good works. Um, and, and here, Luke seems to describe several of them. He talks about the giving of alms. He talks about his prayer, his prayer life. Um, all of these things are good fruit of somebody who's saved. But then again, just because you're um, outwardly keeping the law of God doesn't necessarily mean that you're a believer, especially in the Old Testament context where so many people use the law to try to gain justification. So you could have seen them giving alms and doing the prayers. doesn't necessarily mean they're saved. Um, so maybe a, a second point here on this issue. Um, look in verse 2. Verse 2 said he was a devout man who feared God. He feared God. Now, um, as conclusive, I think, as that language sounds, you know, it says that this man uh, fears God. I don't think that even this language necessarily guarantees the fact um, that Luke's saying he's saved. And, and I say that because many scholars note that this language of being a God-fearer was really a technical term um, used to describe a certain category of, of, of Gentile. These God-fearers were um, described as such because they, they were Gentiles who practiced Judaism. Um, they, they kept a lot of the Torah. They believed the Torah to be true, the Word of God. Um, they practiced a lot of the religion of Judaism, but didn't go so far as to be circumcised, for instance. They didn't go that far. Um, so they, they kept some of, of the, the laws and, and the outward workings of Judaism. And this is how the Jews described them. They described them as God-fearers. Um, there was even a step further. You, they, they would describe a, a step further in a commitment to Judaism as, as proselytes. Those would be Gentiles who actually went as far as um, keeping the dietary laws, being circumcised, going all the way. Right? But a God-fearer doesn't necessarily speak to his actual spiritual case in all, in all instances. It could just mean that uh, Luke's classifying him as that, that type of Gentile who, who was keeping the Torah. Okay, so last point on this issue. Verse 4, verse four seals the deal for me. As I said, I think that Cornelius is a, a true believer. Look at the language of verse 4 again. The angel there tells Cornelius that his prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Okay, so with that language, I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that the angel's telling him, Cornelius, God is pleased with your worship of him. It, he's accepting your worship. It's, it's, a, it's a sweet aroma in, in, in the, to, the, to, the, to the nose of the Lord. He's accepting your worship. It's pleasing. Right, and with that language... Um, if you want to flip to Romans chapter 8, um, I'll tell you why I think this language is so conclusive um, in the fact that Cornelius did in fact have a real relationship with God, even at this point. Um, Romans chapter 8, let's just read a couple verses, Romans 8, 6 through 8. Um, it says, For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are void of the Spirit, those who are not led by the Spirit, they are actually unable to please God. And we know that there's many, especially in... in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, who did the outward workings of the law, but they were not pleasing to God. It was not a spirit-induced working. It was, not, um, it was not done for the glory of God. It was not done out of a true passion and love for God. And so even their outward good works were not pleasing to the Lord, but somebody who's, who's um, being uh, led by the Spirit to do good works is, in fact, um, true worship to God. And so I think as the angel here is describing to Cornelius that the Lord is, is pleased with his worship, is accepting his worship. Um, I think that's a very good sign that Cornelius was in fact already um, believing in the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament. So I would classify Cornelius as being an Old Testament saint, you know, you made an Old Testament, Old Covenant believer. That's where I'd classify him, right, which um, I think May, may seem pretty normal to you guys, may seem fine, and you may have no problem with that, 
which you shouldn't. There were believers in the Old Testament, of course. Nobody was saved unless they had faith in God, um, faith in the Messiah specifically. But the issue comes up, um, and if you want to go ahead and turn there, if I'm going to say that Cornelius is in fact already a believer, there's going to be another text that's going to be really difficult to deal with in the next chapter. Turn to Acts chapter 11, verse 13 and 14. Here you'll see it's a, it's a, it's a text that um, has to be dealt with um, if I'm viewing Cornelius already as a believer. Um, here in Acts uh, 11:13, as I said, this is Peter's retelling of, of the accounts that chapter 10 speaks of. And here Peter's telling the Jews back in Jerusalem what happened to Cornelius, and he gives us an additional bit of information of what the angel said to him. You know, this angel appeared to Cornelius, um, telling him that God's receiving his worship. Here he's going he's gonna to add a bit of information that um, is helpful, I think. Verse 13 says, And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And now this is what the angel says to Cornelius, verse 14. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So do you see how um, maybe there's a tension there between what I'm considering, I'm considering Cornelius to already be saved, so how is it that the angel could say to Cornelius, go get Peter so that he can bring the gospel to you so that you can be saved? Do you see how those two don't naturally jive um, together? Um, and so I think what I have, to, I, I take the words of the angel um, to speak of really this gospel that's going to come to Cornelius. It's going to be um, the, the consummation, the, the fullness of the message that Cornelius never had. It's going to be the message of salvation, which is his salvation. Jesus Christ is Cornelius' salvation. And so as this message of Christ comes to him, there's nothing really out of the ordinary I don't think about saying, this is your salvation. The salvation you've had in types and shadows, the salvation you've been trusting in, the salvation that's even opened up the door for you to um, please God, this is that salvation that, that Peter's going to bring to you. Um, and so, so I see some nodding of heads, and I, I'm, I'm glad you guys are tracking with that, uh, because there is that debate there on Cornelius' standing before Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I was just going to say that a few chapters later, in chapter 18, it reminds me of Apollo. Mm-hmm. Remember, he, it says that he was um, an eloquent man. He came to Ephesus. He was mighty in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he was fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. But he had only been acquainted with the baptism of John. Mm-hmm. And so then Priscilla and Aquila, you know, husband and wife, take him aside to show him what the Bible says, to show him the way more accurate. Yeah. So it's like he was even off a little bit. He just needed to be shown exactly. the way more accurate. It kind of reminds me of like Wednesday at UNT. Mm-hmm. Um, Amelia was open there preaching, and, and this, this, um, these two Christians were, you know, upset because they weren't familiar with the open air forum. They thought it was right. controversial. But I talked to him for about literally 45 minutes. Well, at least it's not about that long. And at the very end, the girl was almost in tears. She was taking notes, writing down Hilton's kept secret, writing right. people's conversion. And um, and I and I said this. I said, um, you know what I've heard from you? I said I've heard from you um, that you want to please man rather than God. Mm-hmm. That you're afraid of what man thinks. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you're right. And yeah. she, her eyes were open, you know. I'd, I'd, I'd hope to think that right. it seemed that way, but just reasoning and taking them aside. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so I think that's kind of similar to, to this here with the follow Yeah, so, with, uh, it's almost like it takes you to another level in your salvation. You know, like, that girl was probably saved, you know, but then when she was shown the way more accurately, like Apollos, I mean, it took really her to another she level. She seemed to really, really care to stick around all that time. And, you yeah. Know I mean? It's kind of like when you study the doctrines of grace in a way. You know, you, you put your faith in Christ. People tell you, you want to be saved, you need to put your faith in Christ and repent of your sins and you'll be saved, you know, and you do that and you're saved. And then when you come to study um, the doctrine of grace and how it is and why it is that you actually believe, I mean, it's almost like we kind of jokingly say you're born again again, you know, because, I mean, it just almost opens your eyes to your salvation. Not that you weren't saved before, but now that you understand it and it's, and it's amazing and glorious and unbelievable, you know, that's when, man, you really are brought to you, your salvation, you understand why you're saved, and it's, it's almost like another level. Yes, sir? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
like in this transitional period here. Right. It's right in between Old Testament and New Testament. So some mm-hmm. of these things, you know, are getting brought out in their fullness, and those who are really believers are accepting it. You know, that's almost how we just, you would distinguish. You know, you have all these old covenant believers who are almost doing all, they're all keeping the law in the same senses, um, but what's going to distinguish them between who truly knows God and who's truly worshiping God are those who accept the Messiah and those who understand how all of what God was doing with all these Old Testament sacrifices. That's what distinguishes. Um, Jason, do you have something? Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, I don't see it as, as a problem because we also would say those who endure to the end will be saved, which is a future tense, so yeah. salvation is past, present, and future. Very good. So good that's text. what I would say. Yeah. yeah, so in a sense, we will also, we will future tense be saved. Those who endure to the end will be saved. Well, we wouldn't say we're not saved right now. We're not saying that even our enduring is what saves us. It's not the basis. It's just a way of, yeah, exactly. Yeah, very good. Okay, so I'm glad that everybody's okay with that. Um, that's very helpful. Yeah, that probably knocks up about 20 minutes of, of argumentation I had here. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah, what do you got? Go ahead. Were you just joking or are you serious? Well, are you, are you going to come across the uh, vision that Peter had? Yeah, well, I don't want yeah. to get ahead. No, I didn't. Uh, yeah, well, let's go back now. Let's right, go, go back. back. Yeah, we're going to go back. I just wanted to jump to chapter 11 because it gave us a little tidbit that chapter 10 didn't give us. Yeah, we're definitely going to go back. Um, I think that could also play into the whole thing with Cornelius and mm-hmm. dealing with all the transition on the issue of you know, salvation. And it was yeah. like, I was just reading that last night to my, my mom and, and Mike that, uh-huh. that um, God had to convince Peter. Yeah. Like three times. Oh yeah. Peter three is times Peter is three times. Yeah. Oh yeah. The first time that Jesus told him something three times. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Peter and his three times. Yeah. Well, let's get into all that. That's what we would definitely we want to get into all of that. Um, so yeah, where we were in, in, in back in chapter ten, we're going to pick up here in verse five, chapter ten, verse five. Here, this angel, um, as the angel's talking to Cornelius, he's not simply telling Cornelius that God is receiving his worship, he also is going to tell him more. He's going to give him some instructions. The angel is going to tell Cornelius to do something. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 5 says, Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And so here this is the angel telling Cornelius to send some men to go get Peter, who's in the city of Joppa, bring him back, and uh, as we saw, he's going to bring the message of salvation. And we saw that in chapter 11. So what's going to happen here is um, God's um, communicating, he's working with Cornelius, telling him to go get Peter, and now, um, at the same time, God's going to be communicating with Peter, and really what he's going to be doing is preparing him for these Gentiles who are seeking him out. And it's going to, as everybody was saying, this is going to be a necessary um, preparation. Because we've talked before, the Jew-Gentile relationship is nothing sweet, it's nothing pretty, even at this time. I mean, there's a great division between Jew-Gentile. And so we're going to see that God has prepared both of them. He's preparing Cornelius and he's preparing Peter um, as these Gentiles are seeking him out. Um, So let's, let's pick up back again in verse 9 now. Verse 9 says, On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, this is speaking of these men Cornelius sent to go get Peter, they're approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry, and he was desiring to eat, but while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up, and an object like a great sheet coming down, 
lowered by four corners to the ground, and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. And so here we have this description of this vision that Peter's given. Um, Peter's in Joppa on the roof of his house, and, and he's praying, and he has a vision. And, and, and basically um, what it is, is it, it's described as a sheet um, or a vessel of some sort that's holding all kinds of animals. And from the description given, we know that this is not only including clean animals, but unclean animals. And if you're familiar with all the, the uh, in the book of Leviticus, all the distinctions made between clean and unclean animals and what the people of Israel were allowed to um, consume and use and touch even, all these um, distinctions, um, that so Peter's seeing all these animals lumped together, clean and unclean, all in the same um, same vessel here, and God tells him um, to kill and to eat. Well, all of the, even the clean animals would have been tainted at this point as they're all together. And so Peter, uh, being more holy than the Lord himself, tells God, no, I'm not going to eat of those things. Um, he says, I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And God has to tell him repeatedly here, three times, why it's okay. And the reason is that God has cleansed them. So he says, no longer consider these um, things unholy. And uh, so I think what's obviously happening here with Peter is that he's either forgotten or he never fully grasped um, what, what's recorded for us in the book of Mark, of the words of Jesus. In, in Mark 7.19, I'll just read it to you. I'm sure you'll remember, but here, this is the words of Jesus in, in Mark 7. Jesus said, do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated? You know, this is where Jesus is talking about how it's not what you eat that makes a man sinful. It's what comes out of the man that defiles him. You know, this was the teaching. And Mark gives us a little parenthetical statement there about what, what, was, what Jesus is really teaching in, in all of this language. This is what Mark says. Thus, he declared all foods clean. So this is all the way back in Mark 7. Jesus was declaring all foods clean. So I don't know if Peter just didn't um, understand as many of the times they did not. They didn't understand everything Jesus taught. A lot of times it took um, a long time before the Spirit would, would bring to their memory and, and correct their understanding of Jesus' teachings. This must have been uh, the issue. Um, but obviously there was a more significant um, spiritual reality behind just the cleansing of animals. There was something else to it. Um, and Peter's trying to figure that out. Look at verse 17. Acts 10, 17 says, Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind um, as to what the vision which he had seen might be, meaning Peter's trying to figure this out. What is God doing by cleansing the animals? What does all this mean? It says, Behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius and having asked directions for Simon's house appeared at the gate. And so there's Peter's answer to the inquiry of what does God mean by cleansing these animals. Now all of a sudden there's Gentiles at the door. There's Gentiles seeking Peter. Um, these men who are unholy, these men who are considered unclean, these men who, who, who eat unclean animals, who are uncircumcised, um, these are um, the, the, the very men who are now at the same time Peter's having this vision they're appearing and seeking Peter. They're at the door, and they're going to be asking Peter to come with them to a Gentile's house, to Cornelius' house back in, uh, in Caesarea. And so at this time, now Peter's, Peter's putting the, the two and two together. Peter's starting to get it. It's clicking. Um, if you want to just, just glance down at verse 28 and 29, we see what Peter, um, this is after Peter's already got to Cornelius' house. He agrees to go with these Gentiles. He comes to Cornelius' house. In verse 28 he says, um, and he said to them, this is Peter, he's speaking to Cornelius, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. 
And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising an objection when I was sent for. So I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? So we see Peter, Peter gets it. He gets the connection between his vision of the unholy animals that God has cleansed and now unholy Gentiles are showing up um, who I think he, he knows why he is in fact coming um, because God is cleansing the Gentiles. But as we said as well, it's not going to be a very easy thing for Peter to accept or any of the Jewish Christians. Um, so Peter asks Cornelius, why have you sent for me? And, P- and uh, Cornelius responds by telling him all that has happened. He tells him how he's had an angel appear to him, and the angel directed him to go seek out um, Peter. And uh, verse 24, which also we didn't touch on, but verse 24 also gives us another piece of information that while, uh, while Peter was being sent for, Cornelius, Cornelius was gathering all of his um, close relatives, all of his friends. He was gathering them, bringing them to his house, knowing that, um, as the angel told him, that Peter was going to bring the message of salvation. So as Peter arrives um, at Cornelius' house, it's not just Cornelius there. Cornelius has gathered all of his, uh, his Gentile relatives and his close friends. And so Peter shows up to a, to a gathering. Um, and so what we're going to see here, verse 34 really starts Peter's uh, gospel presentation. It starts his message um, that he's going to give to these Gentiles. And Luke gives us ten verses here of Peter's message, um, which is a, it's quite a bit of reading for us in this class. Uh, but, you know, I really, just, I really want us to be exposed to all of the apostolic um, preaching uh, messages that we have recorded for us. I want us to see them. And the reason I think it's so important to, to take time to, to look at these messages, the, the apostolic preaching, is because um, I think a lot of the times, just like Trish was saying, um, a lot of the times, even by professing Christians, we go out, we, we preach Christ in the streets, we preach Christ at the schools, and people are really taken back. They're, they're offended. They, they're turned off by the message, I think, not just even the way we're doing it, but even just the message, our gospel presentation. Um, they're offended by it. They're stumbled by it. And I think, just as Trish described with that lady, most of the time it's because they're just ignorant of, of the gospel presentations in the Bible, um, if they just would go read all of Jesus' messages, they were all not, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That, and that's, you know, by tradition, that's what they've been taught to, that is their gospel presentation. They think that, they assume, that's probably what all Jesus was saying. But as we read these gospel presentations in the book of Acts, of the apostles, we're going to see um, that there was much more to their gospel presentation. And so it's very good for us, I mean, even who do go and preach, to make sure that our presentations of the gospel are, are apostolic, um, apostolic in the sense that we are preaching Christ the way they are, that our emphasis is on the things that the, that the uh, apostles' emphasis was. You know, we want to have a, a pure gospel presentation. And so let's, let's, read, let's read Peter's message to these Gentiles. Um, I'm just going to try to interject as least as humanly possible as we read through this. But let's start in verse 34. Um, Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Um, i got to already interject already just to note that what Peter is not um, saying, and we'll see as we get to the end of this sermon, he's not saying that God accepts people based on uh, their good deeds. You know, he, he's making the point that um, it, this is more a description of people who God has accepted than anything, those who fear him and do what is right, regardless of what nation they're from. Right? He's not saying the basis of God's acceptance of them is, is their um, doing what is right, as we, all, we know that. Um, so he's just saying that God is not showing partiality. God is accepting all who fear him and do what is right, meaning God is accepting anyone who who comes to him, of course, by faith and and, and a faith that works. Um, So let's go on here. Verse 36 says, The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Um, If you don't get anything, if all you get is the fact that Peter preaches the lordship of Jesus Christ, um, that is a message that you can take to preach to people. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. 
that's going to cover a lot of ground right there already. You're preaching the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Um, that, that, that's huge enough, um, but that's just the, the first line here of his message. Let's go on. He says, you yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed, you know of Jesus of Nazareth. And I don't know, I mean, that was interesting to me already that Peter's telling Cornelius this Gentile, he says, you have already heard of these things. You know, the, the, the miraculous things that Jesus did spread far and wide. When you see the things that, I mean, the way the Gospels describe the healing ministry of Jesus Christ, all that came to him were healed. I mean, he was going to other cities, healing everyone who had demons and, and was sick. I mean, people were hearing about this all the way in Caesarea. So Cornelius had already heard something of Jesus. Um, verse 38 going on, it says, How God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, and they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross, literally hanging him on a tree. Um, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and to solemnly, testi solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. And so I stopped there to note that what we've seen him preach so far, he's preached the lordship of Jesus Christ over everything. He's preached the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here he makes the note that Jesus Christ is the judge of everyone, the living and the dead. Jesus Christ is who you will stand before when you die or even if you're alive when he comes. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot to that statement that Jesus Christ is judge. Um, let's flip back really quickly. I might regret this, but it's worth it. John 5, 22. We're running out of time, but I want, I want you to grasp Jesus' own teaching on the fact that he is judge. There's a, there's a lot more than may even seems on the surface of this. Turn to John 5, 22. In 23, this is the words of Jesus here. John, uh, Jesus said, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And now here's the reason that all judgment is given to the Son. So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so the reason that judgment is given to the Son is so that all will honor him just as they honor the Father, which is just a way of putting the Son on the same level um, as God the Father. Jesus Christ is no less God than God the Father. So um, any low view, any lower view of Jesus Christ, any view that you may come across, any religion, denomination, whatever it is, that has a lower view, a lower honoring of Jesus Christ than God the Father, you know that it's false. And those people who, who advocate for, a, as we talked about in Emilio's class and on Union with Christ, any, uh, any sub-level view um, ontologically of, of Jesus Christ as if he's not um, of the same makeup of God, he's a lesser God, a created being that who now is God, any low view of Jesus Christ that does not put him rightfully where he should be with the Father is false. And if you have a low view, substandard view of Christ, Jesus says you don't have the Father. Because the only way to the Father is through the Son. And so it's unacceptable to have a low view of the Son. You must have a low view. I mean, you must have a high view of the Son to even get to the Father. And so Jesus Christ, back in Acts, Peter preaches Jesus Christ as judge of the living and the dead. Lastly, his last line of, his, of this summary, I think what it is, of, of his sermon, verse 43, of him, uh, Peter says, of him, speaking of Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, there's two huge truths here in, in that one statement. First of all, Peter says that all of the prophets bear witness of Jesus Christ. Um, this has kind of been a, a, 
a, a truth, a reality that, that we've really tried to hammer home um, with you guys every chance we get, that Jesus Christ is who the Old Testament is speaking of, all of the prophets. They've been speaking of Christ. They've been pointing to Christ. They've been showing the need for Christ. They've been prophesying of Christ. That's what they've been doing. That's what the Old Testament was. And we, we think that this is important for you to understand because we want you to, um, uh, to rightfully use your Old Testament. Um, the Old Testament is not just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's not just a bunch of examples of, well, this is how you live. This is not how you live. That's not all that, that is there. That is not all that the Old Testament is. The Old Testament is, is pointing to Christ um, in many different ways, explicit, implicit, prophecies, all of these things, type shadows. Um, but we want you to rightfully use your Old Testament and appreciate it for what it is. I mean, this is thousands of years of God progressively revealing his son, and then it just culminates in the, in the incarnation and the coming of Christ. That's why we want you to view your, your Old Testament and so that's what Peter says here. All of the prophets have borne witness to Jesus Christ. And what do they bear witness to? It says that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Okay, so just as I kind of qualify the very first line of Paul's message, he says that everybody who fears God and does what is right is welcome to him. Here Paul, I mean Peter explicitly um, speaks of how one gains forgiveness of sins. And he says it's by belief, it's by faith. It's by trust in Jesus Christ, in him. Right? It's not of your works. It's not of what you do. It's belief in him is how one receives forgiveness of sins. And so I wanted to take that time to just see this is the apostolic message. This is the message of Peter when he's preaching, even to the Gentiles. And it's very similar, is it not, to his preaching to the Jews, I think. The apostolic message is consistent. They're preaching Christ. They're preaching how to get Christ, repentance and faith. Um, and so in the midst, in the midst of Peter's uh, preaching of the gospel, look what happens. Verse 44, Acts 10, 44, it says, While Peter was still speaking these words, actually in the midst of him speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues, and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. And so here it is. Um, here we have this, this confirmation uh, by God through the giving of the Holy Spirit that, in fact, another people group are being brought in to the church of God. Now the Gentiles are being confirmed by the gift of the Holy Spirit, um, confirming really, I think, most significantly to the apostles. As I said, Cornelius seemed to already have a relationship with God, uh, but the apostles, as we'll see, uh, all of the Jewish Christians, this is going to take a long time for them to grasp. A long time. This incident right here, if, if it just helps you to, uh, with the timeline in your mind, this is like nine or ten years after Pentecost. You know, sometimes the timeline, we kind of read Acts like all this is just happening within a month. This is 10 years um, following Pentecost. And so they, they, are, they are amazed. Um, verse 45 told us, all the circumcised believers were amazed because the Holy Spirit was being poured out on the Gentiles. Um, they're, they're still surprised. I, you know, it, it's, it's kind of amazing to me. Like we've seen God reach out to Gentiles. You know, you have Ruth. Um, Rahab the harlot. You know, we see uh, signs of God's grace reaching out outside of the people of Israel, even uh, throughout the Old Testament. Um, think about even the prophecy, the, the original gospel presentation to Abraham. He said, through your, through your seed, all the nations are going to be blessed. You know, so in a way, we look back at these things and be like, man, why are they still surprised that God is going to save the world, you know? But um, as we talked about, just the tradition and being in the Old Covenant for so long, so many of these, these distinctions and divisions had basically um, excluded in their minds any possibility, it seems, of the, the Gentiles actually being saved. Um, but here we see that the manifestation of the Spirit through the speaking of tongues confirming for them that God is accepting the Gentiles and giving them the same Spirit, the same gift, um, just as they had received at the beginning 
And so this is just the confirmation of, of what we had talked about, Acts 1.8. Um, the, the, the spirit was poured out in this way at Jerusalem on the, the apostles at Pentecost. Remember, they all spoke in tongues. Um, we, we saw that the gospel was pushed out to Samaria. Um, I, I think there that, that those believers were speaking in tongues. That's how I think Simon was, Simon the sorcerer was Saul, and he wanted this gift and an amazing miracle of, of this, this tongues being poured out. And now here, the confirmation that the gospel has, in fact, gone out all the way to the Gentiles. I mean, God is receiving them. We see, again, the confirmation of tongues. Um, and this is really what settles it in the minds uh, of these there's, there's Peter brought with him. It wasn't just Peter. He brought with him some other men, and these are the ones who said they're amazed that the Spirit is being poured out um, upon all these believers. Okay. And so, uh, yeah. I have a question. Yeah. So if the view is that Cornelius was a believer and a Christian, mm-hmm. prior to this point, does this give credence to, say, the Pentecostal view that a Christian can be baptized by the Holy Spirit at a later point? After conversion. Well, what's funny about the whole Pentecostalism idea, generally, is this is usually the text you'll want to use to disprove a lot of the misconceptions. Um, we kind of talked about earlier, like Peter's presentation of repent and be baptized. What do you got to do to be saved? Repent and be baptized. Where a lot of people take that as meaning, well, it's at your baptism that, you know, it's through repentance and baptism that you get saved. A lot of people have the view that you actually receive the Spirit at baptism. You know, a lot of people hold that view. It's a very errant and, and heretical view. But um, here, Cornelius um, throws that whole idea out the, out the door in that he received the Spirit before even being baptized at all. And so it's upon receiving of the Spirit that Peter here says, um, oh, wow, we see that God has saved us, that God's confirming that he's brought this man into um, a relationship with himself. And now we can go baptize him. So it's... You know, I think it's helpful. I guess the point, I guess maybe to challenge the view that Cornelius was a Christian before mm-hmm. this, is that clearly here he received the Holy Spirit, and that's typically a sign of the person becoming saved. Right. Well, so, yeah, as we said earlier, like, you could use the example of the apostles. They don't receive the Spirit till Pentecost. Mm-hmm. But we very well know from many of the words of Jesus, you know, like, even at the washing of the feet, you know, um, you've been cleansed by the word I've spoken to you already. You're already clean. Now, we know that they were saved from many instances throughout the Gospels, and the Spirit doesn't come to them until Pentecost. So we know that, that the Spirit in, in, the, in the pouring out of the tongues isn't the confirmation that this is your moment of salvation, always. It's not always. Yes, sir? Well, I also would like to point out, you know, maybe even a, uh, maybe a fuller um, you know, theology of the Spirit, of course, is that you know, I believe these passages, along with Pentecost, is talking about the Spirit in a very particular way. Mm-hmm. I do not believe that it's talking about uh, the Spirit in a general conversion or a general salvific way. If you divorce the work of the Spirit at Pentecost and here with Cornelius from the redemptive history that God is unfolding here mm-hmm. through Jesus Christ, then you may, yeah, you may, you may find yourself in contradiction. You know, how did Zechariah in the temple prophesy, but, but by the Spirit? Mm-hmm. So, of course, the Spirit was already active in his people, at mm-hmm. work in his people. What was not clear was that he would come and affirm Jesus Christ of Nazareth so that people are now going to be baptized in his name. Mm-hmm. So what we're seeing here is a subsequent work of the Spirit, not initial. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's, I think that's what you have to believe or else you'd have almost like two conversions going on. Mm-hmm. The disciples are converted when they believe in Jesus, and then they're converted again at Pentecost, which of course did not happen. Right. I think it is a confirmation, right, that God is in fact has accepted these people already, but it's not their moment of acceptance. Right? They've already believed. Yeah. I think mean, the greatest moment in redemptive history, right, after the resurrection, is that yeah. the salvation has gone to the Gentiles. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I think this is the completion of Acts 1-8 of the whole great, not the completion of the Great Commission, but this is the fulfillment of it. And that all of, all of God's mission of reaching out to, to all of his elect in the whole world is, is being confirmed here by these Gentiles being brought into the people of God. Um, yeah, we're seeing the, the fulfillment of Acts 1-8. I mean, of Acts, uh, yeah, Acts 1-8 here. Um, anything else you want to add on that, on the work of the Spirit and with that?
I know there is, but since time is up, um, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll we don't actually see Cornelius in this paragraph. He's already mentioned, and I think this is to another people group. Is Cornelius not mentioned in that paragraph? What text are you talking about? Well, from 44 to 48. From verse 44 to 48. I think that's a hard. I mean, no, I'm not saying that's not. No, I mean, it's not yeah. part of. I'm just saying that. Yeah, I think it's hard. It's a hard position to take when you look at 11, 13, 14. I mean, Cornelius and his household are kind of really grouped together. Well, that's right. And receiving was already mentioned. Then Peter's going on to. He's talking about another big. He's already talked about Cornelius. And now he's going to another group that he's talking to. These people also. Almost like it's like where he talks about Cornelius. Well, Cornelius is like a snapshot of Joppa. Right. So now he's just enlarging right. that beyond just sure. his house. With yeah. him and everybody else. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I didn't even. Are you saying that this is not to Cornelius' house? I'm not saying that Cornelius is not there. Uh -huh. I'm just saying that he's not distinguishing like this is all about Cornelius. It's like Cornelius has already been talked about. Now I'm talking about another people group. Cornelius may or may not be with them. No, I think he's talking about Cornelius specifically and his household. You know, all the people that he brought into his house. This is who this message is being preached to specifically. Yeah, this one in the believers. I think he's talking about larger people group. Oh, these are people who came with Peter. People yeah, came right, with. Right. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. People came with Peter to Joppa to bring this message. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jewish believers came. Yeah, that's right. Yep, that's right. So yeah, we're gonna have to stop here. Um, we didn't get. I didn't get. There's. There's actually a lot more to get into. Well, we'll save it for next week. No problem. Um, but yeah, as as we said, this right here is. Um, a huge moment in redemptive history, as I said, for us, because we would not be saved if this gospel would not have come um, to the Gentiles. None of us would be here. Um, none of us would have the Spirit. None of us would be believing in God and going to heaven if it wasn't for God performing these acts here. And so we should be thankful to God that, that His grace extended outside of Israel. Um, let's pray and we'll go to, to worship service. Well, Father... Uh, we thank you for your word, God. We thank you for um, just the reminder that it always is, God, that um, you have done great and mighty things for your people, God, and um, we can do nothing but thank you for your grace that you've poured out on us, so a wandering people, a people who were without, um, without your covenant promises. We were without your revelation. We were without you and without hope in the world, God, and, and you broke into our darkness, God, and saved us. Um, Father, we pray that you would continue this mission of yours um, to spread the gospel, God, that you would use us, that you would save many more. Um, Father, I pray that even, even today, God, as Pastor Emilio preaches your word, that um, some here would be, um, would be changed, God, that their, that their hardness of heart would be taken away, God, and that you would give them a, a faith and a repentance that would draw them to yourself, Father. I pray that somebody would leave here saved. Um, God, I don't, I don't know who would be here that's unsaved, Father, but we, we put that in your hands and pray that, that our church would be your means of saving many, God. Um, bless Pastor Emilio as he preaches. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.